Hello and welcome to the Black Country Living Museum podcast, the show where we dive into the history of the Black Country, discover stories from the past and have try and have some fun along the way. Today, we're going to be talking about Mary MacArthur. Mary was a really important person in the Black Country history. Back in the early 1900s, she was responsible for lots of union and strike action, including the famous chainmaker strike of 1910. Now, for those of you that don't know, a union is when lots of workers get together and demand something from the person that employs them. The idea is that if all workers say they want something, then they're more likely to get it than if just one person asked on their own. If all the workers are working together, they can also threaten to strike, which is when they all agree not to come to work until they get what they want. Now, as I've just said, if one person decided not to come into work one day because they were protesting, they would probably be fired. But firing the entire workforce would put the employer out of business, so that's not really an option, which is why unions work so well. Back in the early 1900s, lots of workers had to work in really horrible and dangerous conditions for very little money. It was really unfair on them. Mary MacArthur noticed this and decided to do something about it. She set up unions and organized strike action to get these workers better pay and working conditions. One of the most famous strikes was the one she organized for the lady chain makers of the black country. Now to help us find out a little bit more about Mary today, I've got two people that work at the museum. Uh, I've got Claire. Hi, Claire. Hello. Claire is one of our museum researchers, and I also have Sheila. Hi, Sheila. Hello. Uh, who is our living history programmer. Um, so the way this is going to work is that I'm going to ask you guys questions about Mary MacArthur to try and find out a little bit more about who she was, why she did what she did, um, and yeah, we'll, we'll have some fun along the way. Uh, so I suppose my first question really is, Mary came from wealth. Um, why did she want to help the chain makers? Um, and how did she come across them? Well, Mary was the oldest of three sisters born in Glasgow in Scotland and her dad had a shop where they sold fabric and shoes, socks and shoes and things like that sort of thing. Um, so she had quite a comfortable upbringing. But her father sent her and her sisters to a local school which had some very unusual subjects for girls to do at that time. Um, they did things like science and Greek and different languages. So she had quite a good education for the time. And then she left school and her dad sent her over to Germany to learn about business skills in Germany. And she came back and worked for her dad. So she was quite well traveled then really, wasn't she? For I someone would think that so, that for time. somebody at that time, particularly for a girl. Yeah. Um, she then decided to work in the offices at her dad's shop and also wrote for the local newspaper which was more of a hobby. And he sent her off to a union meeting for the shop workers to, to make fun of it and write a sort of silly article telling people not to join the union <laughs> for the newspapers. And when she went, she saw a lot of his shop staff there, listened to what the union had to say and realized that the girls should join the union and got converted into believing that the unions were a good idea. Oh, okay, so it was completely by accident then. Mm -hmm. Yes. So did that go against her, did that really go against her upbringing? Yes. There are reports that she had a few arguments with her parents, but I think in the end they got over it. Yeah, I think her interest in unions and politics did upset them, but they continued to support her in her interests um, eventually. Um, they never sort of tried to stop her. 
um, you know, I think they provided her with opportunities that this, the education, the sending her abroad, yeah. uh, learning about the business. This shows like, although they might be traditional parents, they're also a little bit modern for the time yeah, as well. Yeah, because I suppose at the time, the women didn't have the vote by this point, did they? No, um, so no. someone being that involved in politics. Yeah. And I think, you know, that they, she, the, some of the, f- the female figures in her family were quite strong characters, which I think helped. Mm. Um, she said herself, I love this quote, there is nothing in the world like believing in a cause and working for it. And I think that sums up Mary. And I think her, her rock bringing has a lot to do with that as well. I think the strength okay. comes through. Oh, that's fantastic. So, I mean, I'm finding out a little bit more about her as we go along, which is really good for me as well. Um, so... I mean, you've, we've kind of touched on this already. Was it really that significant for Mary to be involved in something like this compared to other women of her generation at this time in, in her particular standing in life, I suppose you would, you'd say? She, it was still a very male-dominated world. The public-facing um, politics was very male-dominated. But you do start to get women coming into these roles towards the end of the 19th century and into the 20th century. Yeah. Um, you've got women starting to campaign to get the vote through the suffragette movement. Um, so yeah, the, the, there are female figures. Um, one of her friends, Margaret Bonfield, she was a member of the Shop Assistance Union. She actually went on to become the first woman cabinet minister in the government. Right. So th- these opportunities were starting to open up. Yeah. So, I mean, um, for the, sorry, so you, did you want to add something? I was going to say that there's another lady who I find quite interesting because most of the ladies who got involved into politics at that time tended to come from middle-class families, Mm. Uh, whereas Julia Varley was um, born in Bradford and she worked at the local mill. She had part-time education from the age of 12, but when she was 14, she started working at the mill full-time. And quite early on in her teens, joined the workers' union for the mill workers, and she got so fed up of other women not wanting to join that she's decided to run the union herself. And uh, she then eventually moved down. She, well, she met Mary in 1909, and Julia moved to Birmingham, where she helped George Cadbury, and she became involved in a lot of union work in the Midlands and the Black Country, and also got involved with Mary in the chainmaker strike. Okay, so th- around this time, then more people started to to sort of step forward and, and be heard, really, because mm. I, I suppose before this, it was unheard yeah. of for someone yeah. to take, take the focal she, point. She's like quite that. unusual being working, working class, class, I think yeah. that's quite another yeah. story. For this period, I think working class, it's, it's much more middle class and upper mm. sort okay. of class women who are finding these opportunities. Julia's um, sort of the breaking the mould for working yeah. class women. Um, so we've talked a little bit about Mary then and a little bit more about women at the time. This chain makers strike then, um, they were campaigning for better pay for for the lady chain makers. Uh, how did it how did it go? You know how how successful was it? What happened? Um, they'd been tricked out of a pay rise by their employers. They should have had a what was classed as a minimum wage of twopence halfpenny an hour, and a lot of them tricked them out of it, making use of the fact that a lot of the women could read, couldn't read at the time. They got them to sign an agreement that they didn't understand and it tricked them out of the pay rise. So Mary encouraged them to go on strike and I think they were a bit concerned about going on strike because they were wondering how they were going to feed their families. Yeah. Um, so Mary said she would support them and raise money to, to pay enough to keep them alive, feed their families during the strike. 
Okay. She was really savvy as well. She with media. It was a, the newspapers were your social media of the day, <laughs> and she knew how to tap into that. And she got national newspapers, international newspapers, as well as the locals covering this story. Yeah. That brought in more donations um, from far and wide. She really did like a good kind of what we call PR exercise on the strike. Yeah, because it's not like today where you can jump on Twitter no. and tell everyone about it and you can get thousands of followers and things like that, was it? This Everything had to come from the newspapers, I'm guessing, didn't And she it? made um, use of Pathé News, which was quite new okay. at that time. So that's the film company who did newsreels for the cinemas. And I think that spread the story around yeah. and about £4,000. She used um, one of the oldest chain-making women in Cradley Heath as well, um, Patience Round, who was in her 70s, um, as like a, a, a figure of the strike. Oh, she'd been working, yeah, <laughs> she'd been working since she was about 13 or something, very young anyway, mm. um, as a chain-maker. Um, she was still working when, you know, you might think she'd have retired, but she needed the money. Um, and she was like a figurehead and was featured in a lot of news articles and was sent off to Birmingham. Like some of the women wore chains around their necks to sort of rattle them as they called for donations. <laughs> um, so, yeah, she really knew how to kind of, I suppose, like play the media. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so she'd be kind of be a bit like an influencer today, wouldn't mm-hmm. they? Find, find something that works and shout yeah. about it as loud. Yeah, it'd account. be all over her Instagram account or whatever's <laughs> kind of the, the thing at the moment. Uh, so, I mean, how successful was it then? You know, did did she do? Did she look after them like she promised she would? Very and much did so. she, you yeah. know, did, did did she get them the pay? Yeah, there were. Uh, there's a bit of debate about how many weeks it was. It usually ranges between ten to thirteen weeks. So they're out of work a long a time. A long time, but they were paid every single week. I know I don't know how true it is, but there was a wonderful story about the ladies with the babies got paid first, so they'd queue up for their money and pass their babies down the road, so you'd see the same baby coming back. Right, because that's interesting. Because when we when we uh, when we have our episode of of the of the chainmaker strike, you find out a little bit more about the conditions that the babies uh, mm-hmm. the babies. Yeah, that's interesting. And ultimately, the strike was successful. Um, the women got what they want, you know, were asking for. Yeah. Um, it was a huge success, mm-hmm. and they raised that much money that there was actually money left over in the strike fund. Um, it varies between one and a half thousand to two thousand pounds. What people say was left. Um, one and a half thousand pounds today is roughly worth about a million pounds. And this was used to build the Workers Institute in Cradley Heath, a building that's now at the museum. And that was to be a hub for union members. You could go there to pay your, your subscription fees or get advice. Yeah. Um, but it also hosted community activities. It was a cinema at one point. Um, it hosted dance classes for local children and much more. And um, I mean, if you want me to go on about Mary, she did yeah. continue. She didn't just stop with the women chain makers. She continued with her union work and campaigned for women workers and their rights, often the worst paid and the worst conditions. Um, and in 1918, she hoped to become an MP for Stourbridge. And this was the first election after women were given the vote. Mm. And unfortunately, she narrowly lost out to another candidate. And she was angry because they made her use her married name, Anderson, instead of MacArthur. And it was Mary MacArthur that was the name yeah, that was known that was locally. So she wasn't happy about being forced to use her, her married name. Um, but her name lives on as well, like um, legacies after she died, two organisations were set up. One gave out scholarship grants for young women who hadn't got formal qualifications to help them study. And um, one that's still going today, the Mary MacArthur Holiday Trust, and that gives money to women to help them take a holiday if they've been unable to because they can't afford it or they've been yeah. ill. Um, and that, that trust is still active today. Fantastic. I mean, she, she sounds like an absolutely amazing woman. and. 
let's face it, people are still protesting about things today and it, it's the same yeah. today as it was back then. Mm, um, I mean, I found it really interesting what you were saying about the, um, they tricked the women into signing something that they didn't know what they were yeah. signing because they, they couldn't read. Mm. Today, if someone did that, they'd be in a mm. massive amount of legal trouble. Um, but it sounds like that wasn't the case at the time. It just sounded yeah. like it was do what you're told. Or you won't get any work yeah. because it was people turning up to give them the work. So if they didn't sign, they were thrust the piece of paper, they didn't understand it. It was probably presented in a way that made it hard to understand even if you had a little bit of um, yeah. reading and writing skills. Um, and she just stepped in and said, we're not having this. Incredible. And I really like that about her. That's brilliant. She does sound quite a sort of fiery character and yeah. you hear about her sort of giving speeches yeah. and you think, yeah. She's <laughs> the person you'd like to go back in yeah. time and meet. Yeah, I, I think, I mean, about the women chain magazine, Cradley Heath, they weren't to be messed with, they weren't pushovers yeah. as a group. <laughs> but I think because they were targeted individually, and they were worried that they wouldn't get the money and be able to feed their families. Yeah. They needed a, like a kind of a union figure who understood how it worked, got them together, said, I'll look after you. You will get some money while you strike. Um, and that made it happen. And as a group, they were a force to be reckoned with. And that, I think that was Mary coordinating that and making it happen. And it shows what you can do, really, if you work together, doesn't yeah, it? And Definitely. good publicity yeah. really helped. <laughs> Fantastic. Right then, so um, that's the end of, of that segment. Um, what we're going to do now is uh, something that's a, a little bit more lighthearted. Uh, we're going to talk about health and safety in the black country, um, which, I mean, to be honest, if, if it did exist, we probably wouldn't be talking about it as much. But uh, there, there are some very interesting accidents that have happened in the black country over the years, isn't there? Um, so one of the one of the ones that I've picked out for this week is um, an incident that took place in in our lime kilns. Uh, so uh, for those of you that don't know or can't picture them, uh, imagine a massive chimney built into the side of a of a hill or a cliff. Um, now, in the top of it, you would have uh, an area where you could dump in lots of coal and and lime, and you would light it. Uh, and it would turn into a massive furnace. And you're looking at temperatures of around about a thousand degrees, uh, just for your own knowledge, sort of water boils at a hundred degrees. So I think you can best describe it as being quite hot. Um, workers at the time, you would have thought they'd be a little bit more sensible than this, but um, one guy, and I can read the exact thing, this is from a newspaper clipping from 27th of June, 1877. A man whose name is unknown was working at some lime kiln and just before the dinner hour, he placed his dinner near to the kiln to warm. So bearing in mind that it was a thousand degrees. Um, when he went to pick it back up again in doing this, he actually overbalanced and fell into the lime kiln. Um, unfortunately, his body could not be recovered until half an hour later. Um, and then it was burned to nothing but a cinder. So it is an absolutely horrendous accident but you just think why would you put your lunch next to something that hot and well i suppose one of my questions to, for for you guys is was there nothing stopping from doing this no probably not and there was no canteens or rest rest spaces yeah i suppose you know in those days um, you know fact the industrial revolution it kind of explodes and it all happens really fast and people are suddenly working in um large space lots of people together it's all about for the owners it's about making profit yeah um and very little is given to 
there's no, nothing in like the laws about how you should protect your workers in a factory. It, this is all new. Um, and it, 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 we were talking earlier, you have to start to get these accidents and that, and for, and for it to get into the papers and people to go, hang on, this isn't right, yeah. to start to campaign for better conditions. And you start to get things going through law that employers have to start putting things in so place. So eventually they started to look after people, but certainly in the early times, yeah. it was just a case of deal with it and look after yourselves rather than we and a lot of the women chain makers worked at home anywhere they had um, furnaces in a shed in their backyard so they would have to supply a lot of their own yeah so i I mean this goes a little bit further forward into our into our next segment actually because we did have uh, one question um from uh, someone who's anticipating this this uh, this going live and the question itself was actually about the the babies that were put in the workshops while the lady chain makers were no. working, and well, more, more more generally, actually, how they looked after their family while working at the same time. Yeah. I mean, what sort of conditions would these workshops have been in? They're, they're tight spaces. They're dark. Um, you've got the heat from the fire, but you've got all the debris from what the the mess from what they're making. Yeah. Um, you've got the ash that, that's coming the from smoke. the fire on the floor. The smoke. It's the children's playground. Ooh. Young children, um, if they weren't at school, they would be just playing at the workshop. The babies would be in a in a box, a wooden box, you know, like it would be their cot <laughs> at the side. I guess, you know, the mum would only stop to feed them and then they'd just, you know, be... So it's, it's not to... like today where, well, I mean, speaking as a parent myself, I have to entertain my children quite a lot. It would be a case of just leave them to yeah. entertain themselves. Yeah. and Yeah, or out, out in the street, just outside, you know, they, with other children, yeah. other, if there were other workshops nearby. But, yeah, it, you wouldn't be... It's not as intense as, like, what children get today, that kind yeah. of childcare. <laughs> at all you also read of a lot of the ladies go working all day going home having a baby and being back at work within a few hours mm-hmm. right terrifying <laughs> so they would actually be having the the labor pains and yeah. contractions during the while they were working up until the point that they couldn't bear it anymore and they'd go and have the baby and, and if, if they could they would yeah they'd it's be back. incredible isn't it i mean i suppose it goes to one of those things you do what you have to do and obviously if they weren't working they weren't earning any money, which is, yeah. uh, says more about the people that own the, own the businesses. These women wouldn't necessarily have all been married. Some of them would be married, but the husband might be ill and unable to work. Um, they might be older and retired, and so they need money to come in. Or the husband might have a job but doesn't bring in much money. So they, you know, this this wage is helping keep the family going. Yeah. I mean, in terms of feeding them, they would just do simple meals like a, a, a stew pot on the fire, bubbling away, probably with lots of veg in it rather than meat, um, and that would could just be left to cook. Yeah, because meat was expensive, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. And it? If you didn't have an animal, you had to go and buy it, and that's where mm-hmm. the price went up. And children, when they got home from school, would be expected to help out so that once yeah. they left school, they learnt the skills, so ready much, to start Not work. much free time to... Not a lot, no. <laughs> right, so now we're going to have a listen to the very first episode of Adventures Through Time, our series all about two kids that visit the museum and get transported back in time to see the events they're learning about happen right in front of them. Adventures Through Time, Mary MacArthur and the Chainmakers Strike. Black Country Live Museum is a pretty cool place to find out about the places we've come from. And not just the places, it's great to find out about the people behind our history too. Okay, where should we go next? Oh, let's go and ask that guide. Good afternoon, young sir and miss. May I welcome you to the Workers' Institute, rebuilt here brick by brick from Cranley Heath. 
a veritable hub of activity for those that lived over a hundred years ago. Nice. Look at the massive banners. They're really colourful and look like they've been hand-stitched. What does that one say? To fight to struggle. To right the wrongs. Wonder what that's all about? They're protest banners for the National Federation of Women Workers. Why did they make them? To protest. And they're very delicate, so don't be touching them. Uh-oh. Too late. What's happening? Oh, I told you to keep your mucky mitts off them, didn't I? Well, can't be helped. Here we go. Shush you lot. Mrs MacArthur speaking. A trade union is like a bundle of sticks. The workers are bound together and have the strength of unity. No employer could do as he likes with them. They have the power of resistance. They can ask for an advance without fear. A worker who is not in a union is like a single stick. She can easily be broken or bent to the will of her employer. She has not the power to resist... Excuse me, what's everyone doing here then? What are we doing here? What are you doing here? We're the National Federation of Women Workers. Most of us here are chain makers. We're some of the most fully paid workers in the country. I don't know what your mothers earn, but we dream of earning more than ten pennies for a day's work. I warrant I'll work harder than most folk. So we're taking a stand. Striking. And that lady? Mrs Mary MacArthur. Our angel. She's the one organising the strikes and fighting folk down south to get us a fair wage. Permanently. Striking means? It means we won't be serving our labour until we get a fair wage and conditions to match. If you see something's not right, well, you have to take a stand, don't you? Them owners have been stockpiling chains. If they think they can do without us, <laughs> they got another thing coming. But shush now, this talk will be in the Times of London tomorrow. Mary certainly knows how to make folks sit up. So cool. Cool? I'd say it was awfully warm in here. Not as warm as the furnace now. <laughs> so does your mother work with the chains? You two still here? Come on, I'll show you chains. Where are we now? It's a brick hut. So hot and so dirty. Women and even girls working. Let me guess. On chains? That's right. Girls as young as you. In 1911, they thought it was better for them to be earning a penny here rather than waste time at school. Babies too. Left wrapped in boxes so their mothers can work. And all for a pittance. That's so not right. It's really dangerous looking work and they haven't even got gloves or eye masks on. Their clothes are ragged and dirty. I'm guessing this isn't work that rich people do. I bet there are some getting rich all right. Spot on, lad. Wow, what did that lady just say? Ten pennies for a whole day of this? That's not right. I can see why Mary McCarthy went to hell. Was she a chain maker? No, she was quite a grand lady growing up. It was seeing things with her own eyes that made her angry. I don't think she started out planning to end up helping these poor women, but help she did starting unions all over the country and keeping them going. After all, it takes time to rouse hope and funds and it isn't easy when the situation is perilous. It's much easier to organise in good time. Help women see that there was strength in numbers. 
It's a bit smoky in here. I better get you back. Kids today sometimes go on strike. What about all those strikes for climate change? All thanks to Greta Thunberg. You youngsters might think you invented protesting, but as you can see, there's a long history of protest here in the black country, and Mary MacArthur was right in the centre of it. Yeah, they called her the workers' angel, didn't they? Well, she got the job done, helping the poorest women get a more fair deal. It just goes to show that protest can be worth it. So, you lot out there, is there anything that you think is unfair happening in the world right now? Why don't you have a go at designing your own strike placard that demonstrates your point of view? It should be bright and easy to read and make clear exactly what it is you are striking against. Like Mrs MacArthur's banners. To fight to struggle, to right the wrongs. Couldn't have said it better myself. Black Country Living Museum Adventures Through Time with support from the Arts Fund. So that was the very first episode of Adventures Through Time, looking at Mary MacArthur and the history of the Chainmakers Strike of 1910. Look for look forward to more of those in the future. Fantastic. So our, our second question then is, is more about buildings on, on site in general. Um, so our question was, uh, how was the WI in particular uh, and other buildings moved to the museum? Because there's really three answers to this question, isn't there? We've got three types of buildings on site. Um, Claire, do you want to do you want to run us through a couple of them? Well, the first one's got the fancy translocation <laughs> title. Um, that means that it's an original building that was taken down, and we use the phrase brick by brick. So um, the building is um, looked, studied. Um, every single brick, even if it's like broken in half, it gets numbered. So we know exactly where it went by row and by, I suppose, like column. Um, they get taken down and put onto what we call pallets, brought to the site, and then they've got a plan. They find the pallets and they start rebuilding it. Put them back up in the yeah. order that they've got the bricks. Yeah. And we will take things like window frames um, and reuse them if they are good enough to reuse. If they're not, we have to get them made exactly like they were. So that could be quite a specialist job. Yeah. You need special people to, and there's finding special glass um, if it's of a particular age. Um, so it's all very careful and that it is incredibly expensive. And in some cases, I imagine we have to conform to, to more modern day um, policies, don't we, in, in sort of, and safety with, I mean, I'm thinking of the Tilted Cottage in particular, you can see a, a big metal bar on the outside of that one holding the thing up. Yeah, there was a lot of um, discussion with the local council, which um, oversee all the planning, yeah. um, about the tilt and making sure it was safe for people <laughs> um, still to go in it. So that one's quite technical. Yeah. You don't, in those buildings, you can stick to how it looked as well, because um, obviously we've got things for... Um, like disability acts making yeah. places more accessible with those you there's more compromise on that because you are removing an old building and mm -hmm. rebuilding it where we recreate a building which is a building that still exists but we can't take it down because it's still being used which is great but we want to recreate it then we might have to make more adjustments so door steps get lowered yeah. doors might get widened and this you know it's really important yeah. we make buildings as accessible as we can <laughs> um and the last one is um yes, uh, so we've got re rec recreation isn't it so that's where the building has been lost yeah so we <laughs> 
Oh, sorry, recreate. Yeah. Yeah. So we, so we, <laughs> so we've got replication, which is where we copy a lost building. So if the building doesn't exist anywhere before, we build it the way it would have looked based on pictures and people's memories. And then the last one is recreation, recreation. where we've got buildings that still exist but we're copying and as Clara said making sure that they're uh, as accessible as possible right then last question and I think this is probably my favorite question uh, and we can all answer answer this one really what's your favorite building or area on site so who wants to go first with this one I don't mind go on, Gilles, you um, go I've got two I'm gonna be awkward two. <laughs> Uh, my two favourites to work in when I was working in costume were the school and the Workers' Institute. Okay. The school, because I think education was such an important thing in the past. Um, not everybody could always afford it, and then fortunately they changed the rules yeah. so that children could go to school, but it probably changed a lot of people's lives. And it's a very interesting building, and the teacher that worked in our school was a very interesting lady, Mrs Griffiths. And the Workers' Institute is my favourite because I just love women's history and I you, think the story of the chain are, makers are... You are my go-to expert on, on <laughs> anything uh, WI related. Yeah. Um, and I know you mentioned the, the teacher in the school, which is really interesting because hopefully we'll be doing a little bit of a focus on her yes. over the summer, won't we, for, yeah. um, for our upcoming programme, which is nice. Uh, Claire, how about you? What's your favourite? I've got lots. <laughs> but I've gone for my earliest favourite. So this is from when I was a child many years ago, <laughs> visiting the museum, and it's Mr. Do's Chemist Shop from Netherton. Ah, okay. So that was one of our earliest buildings on site, so I saw it. Um, I loved all the bottles, the drawers yeah. of potions, the smell, because Do's does have a, a, yeah, a smell. Yeah, and, and you're I, right, it does look incredible with all those bottles in there. So I loved it, but also I loved it because my grandparents knew Mr. Do. They were from oh. Netherton and they lived near him and so they used to tell me stories about him and they loved going to the museum and stepping back inside the shop. I remember once, I mean my grand could talk anyway, but trying to get her out of that shop, talking to yeah. the historic character about Mr. Do. Um, so yeah, that's that's one of my favourites because it makes me think of my grandparents as well. No, oh, that's fantastic. I think the one thing you do and other buildings on site is when you work in costume, having people come in who remember going in yeah. there when people, I've had a couple of ladies come in and talk about Mr. Dooney, it really makes your day. <laughs> he's, he's one of those local characters that was really well known and really well liked. He was kind of a real community yeah. person and a lot of people turned to him. I mean, he helps look after people's pets as well. Mm. So he was a bit, he was a chemist by trade and qualified, but also like he was a bit of a vet and, you know, he did bits and sort yeah, of things right, like that. Yeah, I heard that he would do whatever he needed mm. to. Yeah. to look after the people in his community so he was like just one of those characters and, it, and i love the fact that we've been able to take that story and we we yeah reinterpret it so we've got people who remember but also because it, it's a while ago now we've got people who don't know but can engage and find out about this this sort of character it's like a real life real story that yeah. we talk about a lot um i suppose that leaves just me then um it probably won't be a surprise to, to claire or sheila but i i really like the mine um the main reason why is not necessarily going underground or anything like that, although that is very, very exciting. Um, my background is in is in sort of science education and doing different experiments, um, which means I really like setting fire to things, uh, in a safe way, of course. Um, and the mine, there, there is actually just, there's more than just history to it, which I, th I think a lot of times gets overlooked. And I mean, our mine is shut at the moment, but we're still able to put on a mine science show where we show you exactly why mines are dangerous, 
by setting fire to um, to a large bottle and even uh, members of staff, um, again, in a safe way, of course. Um, and we even make a fire tornado, all talking about gases in the mine. So I think it's just a really rich subject of, um, of science, history, all melded into one. I knew about you and your explosions before I met you, I think. <laughs> you did, yes. I heard about you. <laughs> yes, my reputation precedes me. Thank you, everyone, for listening. If you want to find out more about the Black Country Museum, then just head over to our website at bclm.co.uk and we'll have all the information you need.